Previously on the Ripped Ticket Review. I got the results of the test back. I definitely have breast cancer. <laughs> <laughs> it was just crazy enough not to work at all. That's the room for you. Uwe, what did you think of this week's podcast, mate? <laughs> it's like unbelievable. Uh, I had my first experience of this film last night at time of recording and I enjoyed it way more than I thought I would. The Crow is one of those movies where I, I, I watched it and it stuck with me for the rest of my life because of Brandon Lee's performance. How good is Bloodsport? It's Van Damme good. What else would you need from a movie podcast and two books talking about Ridley Scott's sci-fi masterpiece? I've got some f***ing Jaffa cakes in my coat pocket. When it went out on Channel 4, it was in the prime slot, half past nine on a Friday night, literally in between Friends and Frasier. That is the best slot you could get at the time. Since the beginning of civilization, people have been delving into the supernatural and the unknown to create stories of the fantastic, where humans can achieve things that would normally seem impossible. One of the key plot points is Warner wanted to do the Death of Superman plot for many years. It was one of the rare times I've walked out of a cinema feeling dejected, disappointed, and not just because it was on the warmest day of the year. I'm looking forward to seeing this film just to see the context of why they crashed an actual Boeing 747 into an actual building, just for the purposes of a film. This is what you get with Christopher Nolan movies. They do everything for real. Well, who? let's be real. Until there's another lockdown, we will see you at the movies. It's been an honour and a privilege. And, uh, well... Let's get the cinemas back open. We will see you around. The government is once again instructing you to stay at home. In a week when Reddit went to war with Wall Street, Disney Plus announced over 270 new things and UK cinemas surprisingly broke the 16-week theatrical window and brought it down to just 31 days. What more would you want from a film podcast than two blokes resurrecting a series by popular demand? Hello, wherever you are listening or watching, and welcome back to the Rip Ticket Review, a film and TV podcast that has somehow exploded in popularity like a Miyagi training montage. My name's Jack Smith, and joining me over the power of the internet is, well, there's not really a decent comparison to be made because, yes, we've got him back. Welcome back, Dan Carver. And I've hit the wrong button. There we go. Oh, oh. bless you. Hello, everybody. Hello, Jack. Um, and I hope everyone is doing okay during this crazy lockdown period. Oh, my God. Can you believe it's almost been a year? That's crazy. I know. It's, it, it's, it's a thing. A year ago, we were like talking about the ideas for a deep dive podcast. And now here we are back for a second series. Yep. Um, I'm not sure what made me sort of think about second second series. I can't remember, but it was just something like, "Oh, we should we should definitely do that again." It was definitely. Um, oh, I remember now. Yeah, because I've been to watch Cobra Kai because uh, I'm I'm really terrible. I am um, got the anti whatever it is anti peer pressure thing. Uh, where if people tell me I should watch it, I, w- I will deliberately not watch it until everything dies down. <laughs> and um, people kept telling me to watch Cobra Kai, so I was like, well, no, I'm not going to watch it now because you've told me to watch it. I'm, I'm going to have to give it another two weeks. <laughs> and um, I eventually got around to watching it because, you know, everyone stopped talking about it and it was brilliant. And it made me realise how much I missed the Karate Kid movies, the first two. The third one's not so bad, yeah. um, if you're drunk, I guess. Um, <laughs> but, um, yeah, that, that's what we're talking about, the Karate Kid. Uh, I do have it somewhere on my uh, DVD shelf, kicking about. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, Karate Kid 2 as well. Um, I first heard about these movies. Um, I'll tell you what, though. This is, I first heard about these movies. They had audiobooks. Because this, this, this movie was big when it came out. It made a lot of money, yeah. both... For the box office, but also for karate dojos everywhere. It was responsible for the resurgence of karate as a popular martial art. Um, but I, I remember my nan had these audiobooks with, um, it was sort of like, teach yourself to read with the karate kid. And it was an audio 
book uh, with you, you had the cassettes on it, and you, you, it would uh, have it, it would um, you'd read along the book along with the narrator. And there would be a sound effect when they turn the page, and that's how I originally found out about the Karate Kid. I didn't know it was a movie. I'm, I'm, and then when I found out it was a movie, I went to watch it, and I was like, "Whoa, this is amazing!" But yeah, Karate Kid is one of the things I'm really grateful for. Cobra Kai it is that it brought back the Karate Kid to so many people who might have forgot about it. Or for people who have never seen it, who maybe they've seen the Marsh, the the remake uh, called again called the Karate Kid, the Jackie Chan one, yes, no karate in it, with Jackie Chan and uh, Will Smith's son, Jaden Smith. <laughs> the um, industry don't speak of that one for good reason. <laughs> well, do you know what? I watched it and I thought to myself, if it wasn't called the Karate Kid. Because Ralph Machio makes it quite clear they should call it the Kung Fu Kid, but I think there's already something called the Kung Fu Kid out there, or Kung Fu Boy. Well, this thing would be would be 2010 reboot. It was the Karate Kid globally, but in China it was known as the Kung Fu Dream. Yes, no, that would be. I think if they had sort of like made it as a spiritual sort of nod to Karate Kid, which which it is, which it is, it's a spiritual successor rather than just a full on reboot. Yeah, but it calls itself the Karate Kid. It attaches itself to the um, it attaches itself to the franchise, which is a problem. Um, that's one of the reasons why I, I didn't like the movie. But anyway, talk about the Karate Kid came out in nineteen eighty four. It's an American martial arts drama film directed by John G. Um, Avildsen, yep. who I do believe appears in the movie as the referee for the uh, Karate. Um, tournament in the movie, I think, um, and it stars Ralph Macchio. Uh, so Ralph Macchio, a young child actor at the time, and it kickstarted his career, and it also helped to revitalise the career of, of uh, Pat Morita. Yes, who at the time I think he'd just come off Happy Days. He was struggling to find work. It was tough. They hand in this part, and the rest, as they say is history. Um, the approach to this was to, to compose a film that was similar to the success of Rocky. Yeah, which is ironic underdog. in and itself because Alvidson would then go on to do Rocky Five. Yeah, but the idea of the underdog who trains themselves, rises to the top and beats, you know, the, the, um, the, the, the antagonist. In this case, the antagonist, of course, is uh, Johnny Lawrence, who is played by um, William uh, Will Zabka, Zabka. Yep. Who had, yep, who had some martial arts training. I think was a wrestler, um, and he's actually a very natural martial artist. I think if you watch Cobra Kai, he, he, a lot of his fight moves seem a lot more fluid, um, and I think a lot of that has to do with his sort of wrestling training. Mm. But also has as well Elizabeth Shue as Ali with an eye. Uh, Martin Cove as John Kreese, who I could not believe. He's like in his 80s. No, he's in his 70s, isn't he? He's like 74, 75 years old. Have a look. I've got Martin Cove. Uh, he's, 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 he looks yeah, so he's young. Between 74 and 75, he doesn't look it. He certainly doesn't he look doesn't. it. When somebody told me he was like in his 70s, I was like, shut your anus. No, it's not. <laughs> That's not true. And I looked, and I was like, my God, so he is. And he looks so... I don't know what his routine is, but, yeah. Well played. Um, well played. Yeah. The story of the Karate Kid is quite simple. Um, Ralph Macho plays Daniel LaRusso. Um, his father dies... Uh, ha- ha- is dead. Um, has died of the horrible off-death, off-screen death, um, whatever it is. I don't think we get told, actually. No, we um, don't. What his father dies of. Um... But yeah, his uh, mother, uh, Lucille, moves to uh, New Jersey. Sorry, from New Jersey to uh, Los Angeles, California. And they are there to start a new life. They meet the kind and humble Okinawan immigrant named Mr. Miyagi, who is the apartment's handyman. Daniel goes to a beach party and he befriends Ali with an eye, Ali Mills. The love interest. Mm, yep, the love interest. Yeah, I have a love interest in these movies. Um, unfortunately, this draws the attention of the arrogant ex-boyfriend, Johnny Lawrence, biker, rebel, karate, black belt, 
who um, decides to sort of do his thing. You know, he's like, don't pick up my, you know, don't come near my girl, even though they're exes. Mm. Um, and Johnny is a part of a gang called the Cobra Kai, Cobra Kai gang. Cobra Kai never and dies. Cobra Kai never dies. And they beat the ever-loving snot out of Daniel. Daniel gets a good sucker punch in. Um, but, yeah, the beach... But they beat the ever-loving snot out of him. Ruins the beach party that they're at. Um, Daniel gets his own back. He sprays water with jo- uh, on Johnny with a hose during a Halloween party. But the gang pursue Daniel down the street, brutally beat him up until Mr. Miyagi, the uh, humble uh, the uh, humble handyman, comes to the rescue, single-handedly defeats the Cobra Kai gang with his karate skills. And then, essentially, the bond is formed between Daniel and Mr. Miyagi. At first, uh, Mr. Miyagi declines to teach him uh, karate, but when they see, when they both go to the Cobra Kai dojo, they see John Kreese, who is an ex-Special mm. Forces Vietnam veteran, who callously dismisses the peace offering that Mr. Miyagi um, offers. But then Miyagi says, okay, well, Daniel will enter the All-Valley Karate Championships. He'll compete with Johnny and the other Cobra Kai on equal terms. And until that time, the bullying has to cease, in which Miyagi decides to train Daniel in the ways of you know karate. And from there on, we watch as Daniel trains. He starts off with the menial chores, yep. which at first Daniel thinks he's just an unpaid employee. He starts with um, waxing the cars. Wax, wax on, on, wax, wax off. off. Then he starts um, painting the fences, sanding the floor, and, and going side to side. Uh, and in one of the most revolutionary, jaw-dropping moments of this film, and I don't think it's actually been repeated ever since in any kind of film, Mr. Miyagi demonstrates that these chores are actually karate moves. You know, the movements that they're making, you know, wax on, wax off, moving the hands side to side, blocking the punches, uh, paint the fence is, again, blocking straight punches. Uh, side to side uh, is more about blocking body punches, and sand the floor is about blocking kicks. The, um, it's actually it's such an ingenious scene. Yeah. Um, and basically, whilst Daniel is training for the karate tournament, the bond develops between Mr. Miyagi and Daniel, turns into sort of a surrogate father and son. We mm. learn more about Mr. Miyagi, and we learn that, um, you know, he, he had a wife and son who sadly passed away in an internment camp whilst he was serving in World War II with the infantry. And that's when Daniel realises, oh, my God, this is actually really, really serious, what Mr. Miyagi is doing. You know, this isn't just for kicks. It's really serious. And the movie then proceeds as Daniel learns not just about karate, but applying balance mm. in his life, which he then uses to strengthen his relationship with Ali. Because they had, had a bit of a falling out over, oh, you something, yeah, something that you're not. Yeah, because, of course, Johnny tricks Daniel into thinking that they're, uh, him and Ali are an item again, which they're not. And, um, yep, at the karate tournament, Dan, Daniel surprises everybody with his skills, makes it to the finals. And, of course, that legendary kick, the crane kick, which gets Daniel the win against John uh, against Johnny Lawrence. Completely, in real life, that kick is useless. <laughs> yeah. but of course, being in a film, it has to work. And Johnny gains newfound respect for Daniel as he's carried off by an enthusiastic crowd whilst Mr. Miyagi looks at him. They very proudly cut, print, Centre press. Cut print, get the credits on, bring the cleaners in. Next film, it please. Brilliant. So, I mean, what can we say? I mean, where do we start? Let's talk about Ralph Mach- um, Ralph Machia because that's his, it's his first film. Yeah, it's his first film. He was a relatively young kid at the time, and that would complicate things when we get to Karate Kid 3 in terms of casting a feasible love interest. We, <laughs> yeah, because yeah, because uh, we'll talk about it more when we hit Karate Kid 3, but the girl who they got to play the so-called love interest, when it turned out that she was 16 and he was 27, they had to rewrite it so they were just friends. Mm. 
but we will talk about yeah. that when we get there. Uh, but he was a, he was a relatively young lad when this film was made, uh, and they, they needed someone young to really sell the fact that this is a guy who arguably revolutionises his life through karate, through what he learns with Miyagi. They needed to make that father, that surrogate father-son relationship work, and that is ultimately where that Macchio performance comes in. He is like the, the glue that holds this franchise together in many ways, because mm-hmm. you, you see him grow yeah. up, you see him evolve through these three films. Uh-huh. Well, the third one's debatable, but... Yeah, the third yes. one is debatable. Um, <laughs> but Ralph Macchio, what makes his, his character so brilliant is that he is the every man of the 80s, the every boy of the 80s. He's not perfect. You know, I think a lot of people um, couldn't really relate to the feeling of being bullied by someone because of something that's beyond your control. In this case, Daniel is bullied because, you know, he's befriending Ali Mills. Um, but also as well, he's not a perfect protagonist. Daniel, there is that argument that Daniel does bring a lot of this on himself, mm. um, which, yeah, I guess you could see that. But again, that just makes him a more <clears throat> relatable protagonist because who wouldn't want to get one up on, on their bullies if they had the chance? I mean, I know I would. You know? Exactly. I know I would as well. <laughs> um, but... Yeah, so it, it is a brilliant performance back in the days when child actors were child actors and not not what we've got now, which is like thespian Shakespearean actors in children's form. It <laughs> must be so damaging to them mentally. I don't even want to think about it. But oh, yeah, this, pr- this performance as well um, is only one half of the equation that makes it worth. You then have Pat Morita, who was previously in the um, sitcom Happy Days playing Mr. Miyagi. And this, it's just stunning. It's perfect. Um, I can't imagine anyone else playing Mr. Miyagi. Such such a well-refined performance. So again, yep. over the three films, you see that character evolve because he's like a bit of an enigma in the first film. And then you get to know him throughout yeah. the first one. And then Karate Kid 2, you get the full backstory of the family and you realise, oh, I actually like this man more than I did in the first film. It is a brilliant, yep. brilliant story that they that they, uh, that they tell over the films. And uh, Mark John Kalman, who's who wrote the, uh, the first three, I give full credit to him because that is how you write a character arc. Yep. Um, with with Mr. Miyagi, he first appears as this sort of bumbling, um, the, the kind of stereotypical bumbling Japanese man um, who who has great comedic timing, um, which comes down to Pat Morita and his sort of stand-up. Yeah, his experience um, on Happy Days really helped him in that regard. Yeah, but once he begins uh, and then sort of un- unleashes his karate, you see him in this sort of new light as a sort of wise teacher who still has time for a few quick one-liners and, and, and quick quips. Um, but, yeah, the, you can definitely tell that these two actors, you know, Ralph Macchio and Pat Morita, both respected each other, mm. enjoyed each other's company, because the performance they get, it, it's just unreal. Without that performance, this movie would not have worked. Yeah. Um, now the karate kid itself. Why? You know, a lot of people will say, "Well, why? How? How can we? Why is this movie so great? How? How do we? You know, gravitate towards this, these characters? And the reason being is because it's a semi-autobiographical. I hate this word. Semi-autobiographical story. There we go. Based on the life of its screenwriter, um, and that would be, of course, as you said, Rob, Rob Mark Kamen. Um, at age seventeen, he was beaten up by a gang of bullies, and he learned to study martial arts to defend himself. Uh, and his first teacher taught martial arts as a tool for violence and revenge, um, which, again, that's the character of John Kreese. Yeah. Uh, John Kreese, whose character is fully fleshed out in Cobra Kai, but here he is a karate uh, master who is the sensei of Cobra Kai. Strike first, strike hard. No, no strike first, strike fast, no mercy. Yep is the motto of Cobra Kai. And Kreese is essentially training these boys to be soldiers. He teaches them that the enemy deserves no mercy. 
and that if you give mercy, you are weak. He brutalizes these children, these students uh, in body, mind and spirit in an attempt to build them back up as soldiers. He is a Martin Cove is brilliant. Mm. Um, that scene where he just goes, but I like that, you know, with his finger pointed up and his eyes elongate. It's just like quintessential 80s bad guy. Only Martin Cove could do that. Yeah, it's, it's a role designed where you really want to hate the guy. Regardless of your views, you are designed to hate this man. Mm. Definitely. And of course... Um, Cayman wasn't happy with his teacher, so he moved on to study um, under a Japanese teacher who did not speak English. And then, of course, that's what helped make the Karate Kid movie. I mean, I've got so much good things to say about this movie. It really holds up well. Yeah, it does. It was because they reissued it a few years back. They did the 40th anniversary reissue, and it was also Mm. on that... Back when cinemas were allowed to open in July, it was on the big list of films that the, uh, that the cinemas could pick from, and I think the local View did get a couple of shows of it. So if I if I'd if I'd have known we'd be doing a second series, I would have probably watched it during the restart. I'll make a point of mentioning <laughs> it to them uh, when we can get back open. <laughs> yeah, but this again was this movie was big. Um, mm. It spawned a franchise of related items and memorabilia. Action figures, headbands, posters, T-shirts. Ralph Macchio found himself on the front cover of a lot of girls' magazines. There was a video game. There was a 90s TV show. Um, There was loads. There was a novelization. Of course, there was. Um, And, of course, it, it it, it ingrained itself in... Hollywood cult in in the Hollywood culture, um, it ingrained itself in the minds of the viewers because we now know wax on, wax off. We know the crane kick, um, sweep the leg. Yeah, sweep. Like, well, when you I hear mean, sweep the leg, you just think you you think right there. Oh god, he's going to get his ass kicked. He's going to get his ass kicked. Yeah, it's going to be bad. But of course, we've been speaking a lot about John Kreese, Daniel Larue, uh, sorry, uh, Martin Cove, Pat Morita, and Ralph Macchio. But we, of course, haven't gone on to um, actresses Elizabeth Shue yes. uh, playing Ali with an eye, Ali Mills. Again, brilliant love interest. And she's not... What I like about the love interest here is that she's able to level Daniel with a harsh word and a stare and does so um, as a result of an argument. Uh, she is a strong female character who you know, isn't afraid to stand up for herself. And that's why I think that she really goes well with Daniel in this in this movie. Elizabeth Shue, I think one of her earlier roles. Yeah, it was one of one of her first roles, uh, straight out of acting school. Um, she was a young one at the time. And then to think of the career that she would then go on to have, um, f- just shy of four years later, she would then be replacing a cast member in the second part of what I think is one of the greatest trilogy of all time, because she would then, of course, go on to be Marcy McFly's girlfriend in Back to the Future 2. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I forgot about that. Uh, you have, William, again, William Zabka as Johnny Lawrence, who is, again, the perfect bully. You can tell that this Johnny guy has got a lot of things going on behind the head. We don't get to see the reasons why he is such an ass. Mm. Um, those are mostly explored in Cobra Kai. I really think that might have helped a little bit. Yeah, having it boil over the 40 years would have really helped the storytelling. Yep. Um, But, yeah, it's... um, Yeah, but again, his performance is brilliant. He puts his wrestling skills straight into the film as his movements are nice and fluid. And I like a lot of these fight scenes as well, is they're quite, I don't want to say realistic, but grounded. They're not flashy fight scenes. These aren't, this isn't a Hong Kong Shaw Brothers movie. This is mm. a grounded martial arts movie. And it really does make you believe that actually you are witnessing, you know, two fighters in a tournament fighting each other. It is absolutely brilliant. And, um, 
Yeah, I, I think that's great. And I got it wrong, sorry, the director um, was John G. Abelson, but he wasn't the referee. That was actually Pat E. Johnson. Ah. Um, yeah, so, oopsie. Um, well, it's a good job we're live. Yeah. It's a good job we're live. Stuff like this happens. Yeah. Um, but also as well, the soundtrack. Oh, yes. Brilliant. Yes. Um Ali, do you want to talk about it? Uh, yeah, well, the soundtrack uh, became quite iconic in its own right. Of It followed straight off Rocky. People actually marked, it, oh, yeah, you're, you're copying Rocky beat for beat, but you've got some great songs on there. New song from Survivor, The Moment of Truth. You're the Best yes. from Joe Esposito, which was originally written for Rocky 2, and Alvinson decided, look, I'm going to use it for my film instead, and it it's got the same kind of, of big fight vibe. The way this film is cut together with the music... It's become like quite archetypical these films now. You have to have at least one big motivational song as part of your big final endgame fight sequence. And it, it, it's true to this day, even with the, uh, the Creed films, which are the spiritual successor to the Rocky films, they still have that moment to this day. Creed 2 had a big song for the big fight. And Karate Kid, arguably, along with Rocky, paved the way for that Hollywood convention to be true. You can't not watch a film like Karate Kid, can't not watch a film like Bloodsport, and see a fight sequence without some big rousing song in the background just to make you feel that extra yeah. emotional connection with the, with the characters. Are they going to win? Are they going to lose? And that is why this soundtrack works. And it works as well because You're the Best by Joe Reposito works. And again, it's to do with the fight scenes as well. When you hear some, when you hear Joe saying, you're the best around, nothing's going to keep you down. And you're watching these realistic fight moves. No flash, no filler. It is proper fighting. And again, that's down to Patty e. Johnson, the fight choreographer, who was also the referee. He's a black belt karate. He, he himself is a black belt in karate. And he featured in Bruce Lee's uh, Hong Kong American film Enter the Dragon. He's worked with Chuck Norris. And uh, he was, um, you know, he helped to choreograph these scenes so that there was some element of realism to them. I think the only real scene I sort of thought, the move, the only move I thought to myself, actually, that's a bit silly, is uh, Mr. Miyagi's double kick on one of the Cobra Kai... Oh, um, yeah, that, that, looked, that looked a little unbelievable. Yeah, but that, that's the only one I'm thinking of. The rest, I'm just like, yeah, no, that could be a proper karate move. Um, even the crane kick, the crane, which is one of the most important martial arts moves in all of, you know, in all of film. They, they even tried to... They couldn't replicate the crane in the um, the remake of the film. They had to do um, something else, didn't they, with um, some movement, um, which didn't look good. And they even tried it again in Cobra Kai with, you know, the special move, Miyagi's special kick. But nothing, nothing beats the crane. In real life, it is about as useful as a chocolate teapot. But in the film, it just... It, it's this beautiful kick which Daniel uh, uses to to win, and it still looks realistic enough to work. Mm. And, I, and I love it. I, I do love this film. It's actually one of my favourite like childhood films. It really is. Um, it launched the media franchise. It was credited for popularising karate in the United States. Um, Morita earned a nomination for the Academy Award for Best Supporting Actor as a result. It made 130.4 million. <clears throat> it only seems natural that there has to be a sequel. Yeah. With that kind of money. With that kind of money and also basically saving Colombia from bankruptcy because they're having some serious financial struggles around that point. Luckily, they had mm. so many big franchises come out and save their backside from bankruptcy. Uh, mm. But Karate Kid 2 came out um, in 86. So... Yeah, the, the, the Hollywood landscape had changed a little bit by then because more and more blockbusters were coming out. So it was competing with more major Hollywood movies and obviously Karate Kid kicking off the whole Kung Fu revolution within Hollywood. There were more mm. sim films of similar ilk coming out. So what did Karate Kid 2 do to make it different? Well, it goes more into Miyagi's backstory rather than Dan's backstory. Yeah, this is a very much Mr. Miyagi's movie that everything revolves around him. Um, it starts off um, exactly at the point where it ended, well, almost exactly at the point that it ended at the All Valley Karate Tournament. I think that was that was originally meant to be the ending, 
but they uh, for Karate Kid won, but they cut it because they were like, no, it's going to draw too much attention away from Daniel's victory. So they put it at the beginning where we see John Kreese attempting to attack Miyagi and Miyagi just passively immobilizes him. With a nose. With the, uh, and then the, the honks, yes. Yeah. And uh, which is, that's it for Cobra Kai. It's the end. Um, and then six months later, Daniel comes back to Mr. Miyagi's house. We learn that his girlfriend, Ali, has dumped him. Uh, his mother's received a business opportunity in Frenzo, where he's going to be forced to spend his entire summer there. Uh, but Mr. Miyagi tells Daniel that he spoke to his mother and she has agreed to let Daniel stay with him. <clears throat> and um, then Miyagi receives a letter saying that his father is sick. And um, Daniel begs Mr. Miyagi to come with him as they decide to go to Okinawa Island in Tomi. And we learn more <clears throat> of Miyagi's backstory and that he fell in love with a woman named Yuki who was arranged to marry Mr. Miyagi's best friend, Sato. But um, Mr. Miyagi said, no, I'm going to marry Yuki. Sato challenged him to a fight to the death to save his honor. But instead, Miyagi left the country. And as a result, um, Sato holds a grudge against Mr. Miyagi because there's no time limit for his honor. He wants to settle the score. And we are introduced when they get into Okinawa to Chosen Taguchi, who is uh, played by uh, Yuji Okamoto. And Chosen uh, greets them both, and he reveals that he is Sato's nephew. Um, they take him to meet Sato. Sato demands to fight Miyagi, but Miyagi refuses. And there, Daniel uh, is introduced to the love interest, uh, Tamlin Tamita, uh, who plays Kumiko. And, oh, my God, I had a massive, I had a massive crush on Kumiko when I was a kid. <laughs> she was... She, honestly, she was the right person for Daniel LaRusso. What, over Ali? Yeah. I mean, you watch this movie and you'll see why. Oh, yeah, well, yeah, fair point, fair point. <laughs> But, yep, and um, we basically learn that um, the movie goes forward with, with Miyagi's backstory. Daniel has several run-ins uh, with Chosen. Eventually, during a storm, that um, Miyagi saves the life of Sato, played by uh, Dami, uh, Danny um, Kamekona, who I do believe is sadly uh, no longer with us. Uh, passed away in 1996. Yep. But um, he saves the life of Sato. Sato realizes that he's held on to this hate for so long. It's it's warped him completely. Uh, Daniel saves the life of a little girl during the storm. And Chosen uh, flees in disgrace after Sato says he should help him, uh, help Daniel. Uh, but Chosen refuses. And then towards the end of the movie, uh, Daniel and Chosen have a fight to the death over uh, the life of Kamiko. But Daniel wins, but rather than, than spare, uh, than kill uh, Chosen, Daniel honks his nose, similar to what Mr. Miyagi did instead. And, yeah, the film ends as Daniel embraces Kamiko, everyone cheers, and Miyagi looks on him proudly. Uh, what, I mean, what can we say about this film? I personally think that this film is, is better than the first because in the first Daniel learns about balance and learns how to, how to stand up for himself and uses his, those lessons to become a better teenager in the cry kid to Daniel takes those lessons and he learns to become a better man in that sort of sense in that he learns, no, I'm not going to do, you know, go, go looking for fights. I'm not going to be as nasty as Chosen. And when he had the chance to actually kill Chosen, he decides, no, I'm not going to do that. Instead, I'm going to follow my tutors, my teacher's sort of teachings. And I think this is perhaps, this is sort of Daniel's high point at this point. This is the high point of the character. Yeah. Um, Ralph, uh, I mean, again, Daniel, uh, sorry, Ralph Macchio comes back uh, in as as another great performance as, as uh, Daniel Larusso and um, <clears throat> Pat Morita again knocks it out of the park 
with Mr. Miyagi. We learned so much about Mr. Miyagi. I'll let you talk about it, Jack, because my throat's getting dry. Uh, right, so uh, with Karate Kid 2, it was basically a lot of the same cast, a lot of the same crew, same cinematographer, Bill Conti back on mm-hmm. music duties as well. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, importantly, uh, Robert Mark Cannon protective of his characters he insisted on writing the sequel because well he who wouldn't with a film that makes over 100 100 million at the box office at that time you'd want to be the guy who writes the sequel so a lot of the original cast and crew are back few notable absences obviously this is ultimately miyagi and dan's story so we don't get to see much of johnny we don't get to see much of crease outside that opening uh five minutes of the film mm. but one of the things i loved about karate kid 2 is they really made it a bit ahead of its time of sorts, in that you open with a full recap of what happened in Karate Kid 1. And back then, multiplex cinemas were becoming a norm. People wouldn't have had the possibility to see Karate Kid 1 back in the day. So opening a film with that little recap gives you a clean starting point. Uh, so let's say if the Netflix generation were a little bit bored, they could just simply skip the first five minutes, see that final shot of Miyagi, and then from there you have your original stuff. That was one of the things that I loved about the strategy films, is that they do not underestimate the power of the repeat watch. Uh, and, on, yeah, you mentioned all the key things. Um, Marita, Pat Marita, he is in a league of his own with this film. They give him yeah. a lot more in terms of emotional stakes. You know, that's, that's everything. They just, everything that was, in, was great in the first film, they upped it. The emotional stakes, the tension, the violence, that final yeah. fight to the death. I'm surprised they could get away with that. I believe at PG back in 86. I'm just quickly checking through IMDb to see if there were any cuts made because the first one did get cut for UK cinema audiences. 19 seconds were cut. Would have been a 15, <laughs> would have been a 15 uncut back then. Uh, I think it's right. a it's a twelve now uh, because the BBFC have um, really honed down on their requirements for violence at twelve. Uh, but yeah, it's a PG now. Um, yeah. But understandably, they would have cut bits and bobs out of it. Yep. So yeah, to receive the PG, one second was cut from this film. One second was <laughs> cut to to get the PG, and that was back before twelve existed. Would have been the wow. fifth. Would have got a fifteen if they hadn't cut that single second. What and it was, was that a, one second. Is a gro- Mr. Miyagi drop an f bomb or something? Groin kick. Ooh, yeah, Mr. Miyagi is a bit of a fan of the groin kicks. Mm. Um, but yeah, speaking of Mr. Miyagi, if the Karate Kid Part One um, was Daniel Larusso's film, Mr. Miyagi, this is Mr. Miyagi's film. Mm, yeah, most certainly as Pat Morita. His performance through this is just incredible. Um, as we we learn about his backstory, we learn about what he left behind, but also watching him as well, attempting to be sort of the, the same pacifist that he always has been and not fighting unless he absolutely has to, um, against Sato, who admittedly is a bit of a corny villain. Yeah. You know, he's a Japanese businessman. He wants to demolish the village if he can if he can get away with it. And that's one of the movie's weaknesses, I think, is the the villains in the story. They're a bit more corny and play up to the tropes. Yeah. Um, with Johnny Lawrence, you kind of get that he is the bully and that he is quite realistic in the in the sense that we've all met a Johnny Lawrence somewhere. I've met a Johnny Lawrence multiple times. Uh, in my life, um, you know, the sporty sort of good-looking bloke who, who um, can't get over the fact that someone's dumped him and beats the snot out of people. That kind of geezer. Yeah. Want, you know, they're, they're, they're in high schools everywhere, sadly. <laughs> but with Karate Kid Part 2, uh, you have Sato, who is the um, businessman, <clears throat> and he plays it to the trope, you know, the angry businessman. He's all about honour. You know, honor is at the center of everything with his um, nephew being, you know, always all about his honor, acting dishonorably multiple times in the movie. Mm. Uh, I might add, um, challenges Daniel's son to a bet and refuses to pay the bet until Sato sorts of say, hey, wait a minute. Mm. It's, it's to say, well, no, uh, I'm going to bankroll it. And then Miyagi comes and he's like, no, you're going to get your 600. Yep. Uh, what else is there as well? He um, defrauds the village with his fake weights, attacks someone, you know, he attacks from behind. You know, he's, he's never on his own. He's always with his gang. Uh, it's, it, it's still a good villain, but it's it's nowhere near the brilliance of Johnny Lawrence, I'm afraid. Mm. And that's probably the only downside to it. But, of course, 
Uh, we say goodbye to Elizabeth Shoes Alley with an eye, and instead it's Kamiko, the dancer, who honestly, brilliant performance. Yeah. I think this was one of her first performances, if not the first, and she's up against two heavyweight title belt holders, Pat Morita and Ralph Macchio. Uh, sorry, Ralph Macchio. That could not have been an easy thing to swallow, but she did it. Um, and honestly, Kamiko did so well. Uh, sorry, uh, Kamiko's character. This was her uh, first film. This yeah, is her very Tal first film. So well in this, it, she was brilliant. I think. What really makes this relationship different is with Daniel and Ali with Nye, you kind of got the spot that they were high school sweethearts. With Daniel and Kamiko, you get the feeling that actually they could go places yeah. with their relationship. And that actually had this movie, had the Karate Kid Free not existed. It would have been a perfect <laughs> ending. Would have been a perfect it ending. Would have been a perfect ending. You could have just seen Pat Morita um, go in. Sorry, uh, Mr. Miyagi going, Daniel, something, let's just stay in Okinawa. And then Dan going, okay, marries Kamiko, boom. And they even do that tea ceremony, don't they, with, with Kamiko. That's one of my favourite bits in the movie. I am a sucker for romance, and I am a sucker for these romantic scenes. I think a, proper ex- a properly executed romantic scene in a movie elevates the characters and that's what we get in that tea scene where there's uh, Kamiku who performs the tea ceremony in front of Daniel. At first, Daniel tries his joke and is like, oh, is this seat taken? And Kamiku sort of gives him that sort of look to say, hey, this is serious here, shut up. Mm-hmm. Um, but then sort of Daniel realizes what's happening. You know, Kamiko's putting her heart out there and saying, look, you know, you are the one I choose. I, you know, like you and maybe even love you. And it's reciprocated in a kiss. It's brilliant. And I genuinely feel like the two of them could have gone places as characters. I loved it. I know. It was, the way they, I think for me, what you mentioned it all, it was a much better executed romance arc than the whole Ali with an eye. And the, yeah. what, one of the things that I found with Karate Kid 2 is the lack of the clear explanation about why they broke up. I know we'd have to wait an extra 40 years for that. And we'll talk a little bit more about that next week for those of you who are wondering. Um, mm-hmm. But the way that they executed the Kamiko romance, that was one of the stronger bits of the film. If only they could have continued that same quality of writing going into Karate Kid 3, then it would have made the whole trilogy just like the perfect trilogy. But Karate Kid 3 has its issues, but Karate Kid 2, what a way to carry on this lineage. If if they'd had ended the franchise here, it would have been perfect. It would have been brilliant. A brilliant duology. We don't need any more. Cut, rap, print, straight to press. But no, they had to go for Karate Kid Part 3 because uh, Karate Kid Part 2 did quite well. Um, again, the budget of, on a budget of $13 million, they made 10 times that much. So, of course, there had to be a prequel. And that's where Karate Kid 3 comes in. in Kar- oh, my God. In Karate Kid 3, I've watched this movie once and I've never watched it since. I don't need to watch it. I've watched Karate Kid 1 multiple times, Karate Kid 2 so many more times because it's my favourite in, in the series. Cry Kid 3, I've watched once. If it was on again and there was nothing else on, I'd watch it. And the next Karate Kid, I actively avoid like poo on the pavement. Yeah, I mean, we were, talk- we were talking about the next Karate Kid behind the scenes because um, from what I have seen, it is absolutely terrible. Yes, we've brought the Zoom over from Talking Smith about film. That's one for our visual viewers. Uh <laughs> Uh, but uh, Karate Kid 3, 89, uh, just a year after Bloodsport, which we talked about last series, which really changed the game in terms of the way Karate and Kung Fu depicts. And of course, a, a certain man by the name of Jean-Claude Van Damme is doing the scene by this point. People were moving away from Karate and focusing on, oh yeah, we got this new French action man. Uh, let's go and see his film instead. And I think that's where Karate Kid 3 suffered, because they needed to do something big to keep the Karate Kid name relevant. And unfortunately, it failed epically. Yeah, um, again, written by Robert Mark Kamen. Uh, it, it, it was in 1989. Uh, at this point, uh, Ralph Macchio was 27, although his character, Daniel, is 18. Uh, they were forced to modify, as you said, they were forced to modify the role of Daniel Larizzo's new love interest because uh, Lively was only 16 at the time. 
which would have been weird and freaky. Yeah. So I think they were ahead of ahead of time, ahead of, ahead of the curve in terms of changing that kind of thing because the eighties and the seventies were strange in Hollywood. Yep. Very strange. Um, but um, it was originally meant to be a prequel with the two main leads still involved. Uh, however, they ultimately decided to go with an original plot they had, which was John Kreese's Revenge. And the, the movie itself um, starts off with John Kreese. He's broke, he's destitute, he's lost his students, and he realises he's got nothing. And so he goes to see uh, his Vietnam War comrade, Terry Silver, who's a wealthy businessman who founded Cobra Kai, and is the owner of a toxic waste disposal business. You know he's evil because the first time you see him, he's in a bubble bath. <laughs> British what? Talking about dump, t- dumping toxic waste. Please, if, if he's and drinking Terry British Silver, tea, please tell me he's not drinking Earl Grey, because if he does, I, 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 that's not a way to write a villain. Villains do not drink Earl Grey. I don't, know, I don't know what he's drinking, but he's drinking it out of one of those fine china cups, uh, which only holds like a drop of tea. Um, but yeah, um, Silver vows to personally help him get revenge on Daniel and Mr. Miyagi because apparently Kai is that important and he sends Kreese on vacation to Tahiti whilst he gets his stuff sorted out. We learn that um, Dan- Daniel tells us that Kamiku has um, been given an opportunity in a dance school, which she cannot refuse, so that's the reason why they weren't in a, a relationship. Lazy way to write the character out. Agreed. Uh, they discover that South Sea's apartment complex has been renovated, which means that Miyagi and Daniel are now homeless. And they also learn that his mother, Lucille, is currently in New Jersey taking care of Daniel's ill uncle. So Miyagi's like, hey, Daniel, stay at my house. And uh, Daniel decides to use his college funds to help finance Miyagi's dream of opening up a bonsai shop. And to which Mr. Miyagi says, hey, thanks. I'll make you a partner at my business. Uh, Daniel meets the new love interest slash not love interest, Jessica Andrews. And at this point, um, even though Daniel has a crush on them, she tells them that she's not available and they agree to be just friends, which is, of course, the massive rewrite. Because, again, for aforementioned reasons, a bit freaky. Yeah. Uh, Terry Silver hires Mike Barnes, who's a vicious karate um, fighter named Karate's Bad Boy to challenge Daniel at the upcoming All-Valley Karate Tournament. Uh, Silver sneaks into Miyagi's house to get information. Um, Daniel, however, has said that um, he doesn't want to defend his title at the tournament. And so Barnes and his her henchmen harass Daniel in an attempt to make him go into the tournament. Daniel still refuses, however, and Barnes is like, oh, then we'll find them. And he's like, I didn't want you in the tournament anyway, and goes off because he's an absolutely terrible character. Um, and at this point, Terry Silver introduces himself to Miyagi and Daniel, tells uh, lies about John Kreese suffering a fatal heart attack after losing his students, and Miyagi and sort of begs Miyagi's forgiveness for Kreese's behaviour. Um, they also find, however, um, sorry, but um, Barnes comes back with um, Snake and Dennis to make Daniel sign up for the tournament, which, again, Daniel refuses. Um, Miyagi ends up fending off the three men, and then they find out that actually their stock of bonsai trees are missing, and there's a tournament application hanging in place. So, of course, like, Daniel goes to the police, but they're not taken seriously. And then uh, it, it's just a load of crap. Mm. I can't talk about it anymore. It's it's crap. Anyway, um, Daniel decides he's going to fight in the tournament. Mr. Miyagi says no, and this causes him to have a bit of a rift. So Daniel goes to Terry and asks Terry to train him, and Terry's methods are a bit more brutal mm. than Mr. Miyagi's, which leads to Daniel sort of going down a dark path, and he ends up soccer punching a guy in the nose who won't leave him alone. Realising what he's become, he's become everything that he's hated. Uh, Daniel decides to drop the whole career, uh, the whole thing. He's not fighting in the tournament. And then he meets Barnes. And, sorry, Barnes um, ends up coming into the, the dojo where uh, Daniel and Terry are, along with John Kreese. Shock horror. It turns out that the psychopathic teacher lied. And they beat up Daniel and... 
then Mr. Miyagi comes in in one of the only be- the only fight scene that I actually had time for. Beats yeah, up it's literally, literally and, the only good Silver. fight scene in the film. Yep, the only good fight scene in the film. And at that point, Miyagi's like, right, okay, I'm going to train you. So they train. And essentially, Crow, um, Terry, has, uh, Terry Silver has a plan, which is essentially um, Barnes will gain a point and then he'll do something to lose the point. And he'll keep doing that until a sudden death, and then he'll beat Daniel. He'll break, he'll break his body, he'll break his spirit. And it begins to initially work. Daniel is absolutely terrified of, of, of Barnes. He doesn't want to continue, but Miyagi is like, no, you've got to continue because it's okay to lose. It's not okay to lose to fear. And Daniel manages to beat Terry, uh, Terry and uh, – not Terry, uh, Barnes, Mike Barnes. He manages to beat him using the carter they were practicing, and all is well, and – well, all is well except for the people that had to watch this. All yeah, is well. We finish on the final shot of Miyagi looking proud, roll credits, and then you have the hordes of angry cinema guys coming out of the screen saying, that was terrible, I want my money back. 14% on Rotten Tomatoes. Okay, so why was this an absolute terrible movie? Well, the first thing is that Daniel, uh, Ralph Macchio is in his 20s and he's playing an 18-year-old kid. I don't know how much moisturizer they slathered onto his face to make him look as young, to make him look that young. But there are scenes and stills where you where it betrays him, mm. and you see that yeah he he's what twenty um, twenty you know Ralph Macho was twenty seven at this point. It was just unbelievable. Like he's he's still speaking in that high pitched Daniel Larusso voice. Um, again, the romance was rehashed. It was Daniel and Ali, although they all over again, except of course they had to make it so that um, she's just a girl who is a friend, not a girlfriend. Yeah. Now, in some ways, I'm okay with this because it's nice to have a a um, a, a protagonist who meets a girl and goes, "Do you know what? I don't want to go forward with um, the whole girlfriend thing. I'd rather just be friends." That's absolutely fine. I'm okay with that. But she brings nothing, nothing new that Elizabeth Shue, uh, sorry, Ali with an eye and Kamiko didn't bring to the table before. Yep. Daniel LaRusso in this movie is an absolute wuss. Mr. Miyagi was not afraid to fight when he needed to fight. And he only did what he had to do was necessary. But this Daniel LaRusso is so afraid of his own shadow that it makes you, you know, like he's being beaten up by Barnes, Mike Barnes, played by um, Sean Cannon, who is, um, you know, he, 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 we'll talk about his performance later. Um, but you're thinking to yourself, this is the guy who won the All-Valley Karate Championship with a bum leg. And then he went on to have a fight to the death in against you know for for the life of someone that he loved. These this is a different Daniel Larusso, and he was technically forced into competing by the people who are fighting against him. This is not how you make a good Karate Kid film. It goes against no. everything we've seen in the franchise so far. How Robert Mark Cameron had it in him to write a script this bad is beyond me. I'm. Surprised that the film even came out because I like to think that the scene where Miyagi refuses to train him, I like to think that's how the cast reacted to reading this thing for the first time. Mm. And it even got, and I'll tell you what, he even got like five nominations of the 1989 Raspberry Award. Oh, the Razzies. Worst well, picture, worst screenplay, worst director, worst actor, and worst supporting actor. Um, but they lost two other ones. It is basically John G. Avildsen in um, 2015, uh, the director John G. Avildsen said it was a poor imitation of the first one and a horrible movie. Um, I don't blame so him. I do not blame him. Even he hated it. It was, it was crazy. Anyway, um, the relationship between Daniel and uh, Mr. Miyagi is still there. Yeah. As it's now become more father and son, we do see a couple of scenes where Daniel is rebelling against Mr. Miyagi and Pat Morita tries his hardest. And yes, there are times when you do feel sorry for Mr. Miyagi, but 
The problem is with the pro- with the antagonist in the last movie, Cry Kid Part Two. We mentioned, excuse me, we mentioned that the reason the protagonists had suffered was because they were tropes. They weren't fleshed out people like Johnny Lawrence. And for some reason, the Karate Kid Part 3 leans into the trope with Mike Barnes, who is the karate bad boy, who has no emotion, no nothing at all. He is just there to antagonize Daniel. Um, We're again with John Kreese, played by Martin Cove. Again, we find out very little about him, apart from the fact that he um, knows Terry Silver. And, of course, Terry Silver, who we know is evil because he's in a big bubble bath in a big mansion, dumping toxic waste, drinking tea. It's just absolutely... There is nothing about these villains at all which makes them believable, which makes them... Like, you don't care about them at all. Mm. There is a scene in this movie which betray, which which sort of hints at something where Terry Silver breaks into the Miyagi Miyagi's house, comes across the Medal of Honor, and he looks at it, and there's a sort of mixture of awe and jealousy. Yeah, and I thought, well, that's really really interesting. You know, is he is he jealous that Miyagi got awarded and that Terry Silver was forgotten about? You know, was Terry Silver forgotten about in the Vietnam War? We'll never know. Or could it be a case of one of the other rewrites they had to do because Martin Cove was busy making another movie at the same time that the shoot for Karate Kid 3 was going on, so that was where the whole Terry Silver character came from. It would have been Crease for the whole film had he not Ah. been shooting Hard Time on Planet Earth. Oh, dear. Well, as a result, we don't even get to see the reasons why. Terry Kreese is fascinated and yet jealous of the Medal of Honor. The film goes, wait, no, that's too good. We have to go back to cheese. And, of course, again, we go back to the All-Valley Karate Championship where somehow Daniel um, is able to skip to the top. As reigning champion, as reigning champion, he goes straight to the final. Even though John Johnny Lawrence didn't. And um, he had to fight his way up to the top, as everyone else did. And, of course, there's that whole scene where Mike Barnes is deliberately brutalizing Daniel and then screaming at him and shouting at me on the mat. And everyone's like, ref, ref, where are you, ref? Where's the red card, referee? It's, yeah, the whole thing is basically the Karate Kids won... But worse. It's like a movie trying to be the Karate Kid. I say Karate Kid free bribes and corruption. Yeah. And it's terrible. Yeah. The fact that it was up for five Golden Raspberries tells you everything, really. And you do not want to get nominated for a Golden Razzie. Because they are the worst of the worst. That's when you've hit a new low. And it would have been that... And that would have been it until 1994 um, when they released the next Karate Kid, uh, which was a martial arts drama film with Pat Morita and Hilary Swank. And it was the first movie not to feature Ralph Macchio in the lead role as Daniel LaRusso. Not written by Robert Mark Cannon either. New director, new writer. New writer. Um, It's It was unnecessary. Nobody needed to know what happened to Mr. Miyagi and nobody needed to know about a new karate kid. It was unnecessary. And, yeah, you don't need to watch this film at all. Which is why I haven't. Yeah, it's it's bad. Um, It's... I mean, it has Hilary Swank in it, who who plays um, Judy Pierce, and it has Mr. Miyagi in. Mr. Miyagi's travelling to uh, Boston, Massachusetts, to attend a Japanese-American soldier's commendation, because, of course, he fought in the 442nd Regiment, a combat team during World War II. Uh, he meets Louisa Pierce, who is the widow of his commanding officer and Lieutenant Jack. Um, and... They um, At that point, Mr. Miyagi meets uh, Pierce's granddaughter, Julie, a high school teen who's struggling with her anger issues due to her parents' death in a car accident. Um, one day, 
Mr. Miyagi witnesses Julie uh, do a jump onto a car that was about to run her over, and it was a perfect tiger. And I think Mr. Miyagi calls it like a tiger crouch or something like that. Mm. And Mr. Miyagi's like, how do you know this? And Julie's like, oh, my dad taught me the, some karate moves before it happened. Um, Julie ends up confiding in Mr. Miyagi, who approves of um, Julie's talent. And one day, uh, Julie is detected by the Alpha Elite, who are a bunch of... who are basically the Cobra Kai in this movie they are a fraternity and they catch julie one night um on the school roof they chase her through school but she's arrested by the police and suspended for two weeks uh by um by the school security uh colonel paul dugan played by michael ironside during those two weeks miyagi takes her to a um buddhist um, temple, a Buddhist monastery to learn the true ways of karate and how to handle um, anger issues. She learns direct lessons about balance, coordination, awareness, respect for all life. She befriends the monks and essentially uh, she goes to a prom, um, but the Alpha Elite bump into her and try to start a fight. Um, stuff happens. Julie defeats the Alpha Elite. Mr. Miyagi defeats the head guy nobody cares movie ends and we're all left wondering why was this movie made oh. just reading a plot on wikipedia and the research for for this podcast i was like i'm glad i decided not to watch this movie in the end because it didn't review well it sounds like absolute pants feels like they were making it just for the sake of keeping a karate head name and copyright alive even though they had to borrow the name from dc under license it was a film that was quite rightly panned. 7% based on 27 reviews on Rotten Tomatoes. Average rating, 3.74 out of 10. Tells you everything you need to know. Although Cinema yeah. Score, it got a B+, which I don't know how that works. Again, everything gets a B plus on Cinema Score these days. Yeah. I can see what they were trying to do. They were trying to start a new chapter of The Karate Kid. The problem is, again, it's just a pale imitation of the first movie. Mm. Um, you have Julie, who is obviously the, the karate kid who needs karate to balance her life, the wise teacher, Mr. Miyagi, um, the alpha, whatever they're called, the alpha elite, who are the Cobra Kai. It's it's just... It's, there's no need for this movie. Mm. The fact then, that it didn't even turn a profit. $12 million budget, overall $15.8 million made at the box office, so... Yeah, broke even. Didn't so, break even. Hmm? Didn't break even at all, and also the fact with at that point, it was the case of you have to double your budget to account for marketing, so, yeah, it was quite a way off breaking uh, even. Fair play. Because uh, at that, at that um, point, the marketing was more of a big factor. Yep. Um, it was... Hilary Swank's debut film. Probably could have picked a better film. Yeah. Um, it was... Yeah. It, it was basically a coming-of-age sequel that didn't need to work, and it would take Million Dollar Baby before Hilary Swank was paid attention to, and it was like, ooh! Um, but yeah, this was just this, this wasn't needed. And then we had the 2010 Karate Kid, which we've already discussed briefly, um, which was essentially a remake of the first film, but with Kung Fu in, in instead of Karate. But you know, when you look at the, the Karate Kid as a whole, you know it's it's a decent it's a decent set of movies. Good, great, they not needed, and. For quite some time, these films lingered somewhat. There was talks maybe of a, of a sequel or a revival, but, you know, Ralph Macchio had moved on to other things, and, you know, then uh, the sad day came um, when the world had to say goodbye. To Pat Morita, yes. Um, to Pat Morita. And um, it seemed that at that point, uh, everything to do with Karate Kid was over until YouTube announced a drama comedy series about the revival of Cobra Kai with Johnny Lawrence starring the original actors. And it was going to be about 
Um, Daniel LaRusso once again realizing he has to stand, step into the uh, on the reins to take down Cobra Kai as Johnny Lawrence attempts to you know bring it back. And I thought to myself, "Oh dear God, this is going to be a failure. Why? Why would you do this to me? Just leave the Karate Kid alone." And it was released on YouTube Red, and I'm so glad that I was wrong. Yep, and of course, we are now at four o'clock, so we have done the hour now. I'm surprised we made it an hour on our first show back. It's like, it's like we've never lost that talent. That is where we're going to leave it, because next week, this Karate Kid saga is too big for one show. Next Monday, yep. live from three o'clock, we're going to go into the world of Cobra Kai, break down all three seasons, and potentially what could happen in series four now that Netflix have confirmed it. But... Karate Kid is a brilliant franchise. Shame that the last two films had to really get it down. Yeah, and I'll tell you what, I, I would actually pay serious money to get those audiobooks of the Karate Kid again on the cassette tape. I, that'll, I really be, that, that'll be a good audible exclusive as well. <laughs> I know. I, I would, I would just, just to hear that again, I would pay good money towards it. Cause, and, and these films... You know, they're always going to stand up to the test of time, oh, yeah. I think. And they will live on for, for, for ages. And in the next episode of the Rip Ticket show, uh, the Rip Ticket Review, Rip Ticket Review. Uh, we'll be looking at the um, entirety of Cobra Kai and how this show how is better than any ride it has to be. Mm. I think that makes sense. It, it, it is good. It is very good. And it has no right to be this good. But we're going to tell you why. And we are going to tell you exactly what makes it such a brilliant show. Yes. And I'm looking forward to it. We're not just a film podcast anymore. We're back to film and TV because lockdown has got to us that hard. But importantly... Getting involved with Rip Ticket Review is pretty simple. If you're watching live on the Facebook page, you can comment uh, below. We can see everything in the live chat. If you're a podcast listener, we go out every Monday live at 3 o'clock uh, on Facebook. And then a couple of hours later, this is the new bit for this new series. Um, we've graduated a little bit. The, po- the visual for this podcast will be going out on the Lee Jack Smith YouTube channel a couple of hours after broadcast because last series was received so well by you guys, the Bloodsport episode in particular. The world loved that one. It's done 2.7 thousand views. Yes! Uh, people, loved, pe- people, lo- people loved the Van Damme episodes. We thought we'd open on Karate Kid, keep the theme going. Uh, but of course, ultimately... Maybe, maybe we should do some more of these Van Damme. I know. Things. I mean, we. I think Kickboxer should be a good Rip Ticket Review episode. Keep on the theme going. Yeah, uh, we'll, we'll do that. Yeah, at, but, at one point, we, we, we got to watch out that we don't end up going into a martial arts no, sort of yeah. frenzy. But I think I think one martial arts episode a season would be great for us. But importantly, <laughs> uh, things that you guys reckon to be good rip ticket review episodes, let us know in the YouTube comments or by email podcast at lejacksmith dot com. Uh, we're open to, to suggestions uh, because we've got we've got a few topics we want to cover. But importantly, we want to keep this podcast going for as long as possible because it gives us something to do. Uh, but that yeah. is it for this week's Rip Ticket Review. Uh, it's been good to get back on the air at long last. The first live podcast I've done this year, actually. Last time I was doing a podcast, it was New Year's Eve. I was literally on air at midnight. But Rip Ticket Review no. is back. Uh, we'll be back, back every Monday from 3 o'clock in our brand new time slot. Good way to start the week. And in, on top of that, uh, small little plug for the blog, um, there is a podcast from ejacksmith.com going out every single week until June. So you're even going to get Rip Ticket Review or a retro Talking Smith Bet film every week uh, for until uh, start of June. So... I'm busy. I'm very busy right now. But like I say, rip ticket, yeah, the Rip Ticket Review will return next Monday from 3 o'clock with a look at Cobra Kai. Until then, my name's been Jack Smith. And I've been Dan Carver. Until next Monday at 3 o'clock, we'll see you at the movies. 